You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Yeah, today we're going to talk about the fears that ruin relationships. We all have them, and they affect how our relationships work. And I've got two friends up here, Tony and Julie Nimitz. Will you get, say hi to Tony and Julie? Yeah, it's good to have them here. And uh, actually, the funny thing is, we knew each other in Southern California in Simi Valley. In fact, our kids took like water polo class together, and we knew them from there. But when God moved them up here to Elk Grove a few years ago, they started coming to Sun Grove, and it's been great to have you guys. But how have you seen in finances or in people interaction, how have you guys seen fears begin to ruin relationships? You know, we were talking a little bit earlier about the fear I think most men face when it comes to their, you know, trying to feel like we need to control our finances. But I think really, as I, Julie and I were just talking, it's, it more comes down to a fear of failure, I think, for most men. And, and we struggle with, you know, how the world perceives us based on what the world says is successful. Um, and we start to try to control things that are not ours to control. And we have that fear of just, you know, I, I can't just be vulnerable. I can't just sit down with my wife and say, honey, I'm really struggling with this or I'm struggling with that. And, you know, we, we kind of rob that of our spouse, which then in turn causes that damage in our relationship where she's really longing for that. She really desires to have that connection with me. And I'm, you know, no, I'm good. Everything's fine. You know, I, I don't need that. And so that's one of the big fears I think that I think most men struggle with. Yeah. Julie, where have you seen just fears impact you or friends or people around you? Yeah. We were, when we were talking earlier about, um, the things that we put on each other as, as expectations so that I have a fear that if I need something from him, he's not going to maybe come through in the way I need him to. Well, that fear comes from, <laughs> that's not No true. guys can relate in this whole room. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Most of the time, that fear comes from me expecting him to be God to me um, and putting expectations on him that he's not designed to meet. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, in the same way, I might, I might expect him to not hurt me. Um, I'm expecting him to, to have this perfection. He's not God. I'm not God. God is God. He's not the enemy. I'm not the enemy. The enemy is the enemy. And so we have these fears of... Um, putting our, 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 our trust in someone that's not designed to meet them in the first place. So I think the solution there is uh, keep your focus where it needs to be, which is on the Lord. Now, when you guys face fears like that, how do you, uh, you know, like when we get scared, we get controlling. How have you seen maybe that play out for you guys or maybe with the kids? You know, I mean, I think we can all relate. I'm never controlling. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think this is a great time to. <laughs> I, I would say a great example of that for us in this last six years has been, you know, we faced a lot of financial difficulties. Um, we had started a business during the mortgage meltdown, and unfortunately, it was the worst time in history to start that company, and we lost it, and that was very difficult. And our our fear, our immediate panic was, what are we going to do, you know, financially? And so she went back to work, and she was home for 11 years, and that was a fear-based, you know, right. uh, reaction to what, mm-hmm. how are we going to do this. And instead of trusting the Lord and trusting his timing, she went back to work into a job that was incredibly challenging for her, uh, graveyard shift dispatcher, mm-hmm. working in the middle of the night. It put a huge amount of stress in our relationship. And the last six years were very difficult. You know, we struggled and still are still working our way out of that. She's just recently resigned full-time, um, so she's back home now with the kids, and yeah. <laughs> I have this fear because I'm looking at the finances again going, okay, how does this work for us? But we're right. trusting the Lord, and we're trusting, you know, that he's going to yeah. work, and, and our relationship has been great the last little bit. We're starting to really trust each other again and, and trust God instead of ourselves, and uh, so eliminating that fear and just trusting him to provide. Awesome. Thank you guys so much. Thank you. Give it up for Tony and Julie Nemitz. Today's going to be a great day. I think you really need to hear this message. I know I've needed to study through it and hear it this week, and God's been doing great stuff in this series as we look at how does our life get actually get transformed. And today we're going to look at relational health because we, our relationships impact everything and how we handle our inner fears and our inner person with our outward relationships makes a huge difference. Uh, in fact, in order to do this, we've got to go all the way back 
all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. If you have a Bible, open with me to Genesis chapter 3. It's all the way back at the beginning of the Bible to the very first relationship that existed. The first couple, it was Adam and it was Eve. And that's where all the problems started. That's where sin entered the world. That's where deception happened. That's where the tension between man and woman happened. That's where control issues began. Everyone just say, thank you, Adam and Eve. Thank you, Adam and Eve, right? Yeah, we can just blame them uh, for all that we've been experiencing. And, and I want you to know that, that why did God do that? Why did God create people? Why did God create the earth? God created the earth as a sustainable environment in which humans could exist because God wanted relationship. God wanted family. God wanted you to be part of his forever family. And so he wanted to make people. And so he started first with Adam. And he made Adam from the dust of the ground. And he put him in the Garden of Eden. And Adam went around and named all the animals. And, and Adam noticed as he was going around there that all the animals had a mate. They had a, a, an opposite. They had a pair. And he noticed for his own life that he didn't have that. He, he had a need in his life. In fact, I think God did that intentionally. So it awakened a need that everything else seemed to have a, a pair or a helper. But Adam did not. And he was lonely. And he noticed that everything else had a mate, but he didn't. And I think God wanted, first of all, Adam to realize his need. And then secondly, I think God made Adam and then thought, wow, I, I could do one better. And so he made woman. And so what it happened is, you know, Adam was made from dust to the ground. He was made of the earth. But when God created woman, he had Adam fall asleep and he took a rib out of Adam and he created woman. And Rick Warren says, I mean, by the way, he just says this, uh, this is why men don't mind getting dirty and women do. Because men are created out of the dirt, so we like dirt. We don't mind getting muddy or messy. Woman wasn't created out of dirt. The Bible says she was created out of the rib of Adam. And it's interesting. There's some maybe symbolism here, and maybe you've heard this at a wedding. But there's some symbolism to the fact that woman was taken from the rib of a man and created by God. And it's this. God created Adam's helpmate, his partner for life, out of his rib. He didn't take her from her feet where he would trample over her and kind of lord over her. He didn't take the woman from Adam's head where she would lord over him, but he took his wife from her rib, from the side, for someone who would walk right alongside him, be his equal, be his helpmate, not his soulmate. God's our soulmate, but to be his helpmate. He made woman from the rib of Adam. So God puts Adam to sleep, kind of like anesthesia uh, in those days. And so he goes to sleep, and then God takes a, a bit of Adam's rib, and he creates woman. And Adam wakes up, and he's kind of groggy, and, and he wakes up, and he looks around, and he's never seen a naked woman before. And he sees all of a sudden Eve, and he says, whoa, man. And then he says, woman. I guess that's what we'll name her, right, God? So that's, you know, he basically sees Eve, and he takes Eve as his wife, and he, he sees that right there, and he, he begins to have a perfect relationship. Do you realize that Adam and Eve in the garden are the only couple in the history of humanity who've ever had a perfect relationship for a season because sin entered? But could you imagine, just for a minute, their relationship in the garden was paradise. It was perfection. There was no sadness, no sickness, no sorrow, no suffering. There was no deceit. There was no lying. There was no manipulating. There was no controlling. There was no jealousy. Could you imagine what a great relationship that would have been? And they had that in the garden, the only couple that ever did. But then Satan comes along, and he begins to lie to Eve. And he begins to meet her in the garden. He said this, didn't God say that you can't eat from any of the trees of the garden? Now, of course, God didn't say that. God said, there's this one tree that you cannot eat of, the knowledge of good and evil. And so he says, don't eat of that tree. But the other trees, they're all fair game. But don't eat the knowledge of, the, uh, of good and evil. In other words, that's the minimum temptation. Do you realize that God gave the very minimum temptation? See, because why wouldn't God create all the trees so things would be perfect forever? Because if he did that, there wouldn't be choice. And without choice, there's not love. You and I would be like robots. 
God created us and we're his little minions running around. We don't have choice. In this situation, he created the minimum temptation. He didn't create a garden with the maximum temptation where humans were destined to fail. He created the minimum. They have choice. And Satan comes along to take advantage of that choice. Everything else was within limits. They could eat from any tree, but not this one. God gave a choice. He said, I want you to love me. But then Satan comes along and says, listen, God's lying to you. He doesn't want you to be like him. So eat of this tree because you're not going to die if you eat that. If you eat of this tree, you're going to be like God. You're going to be a God. And that's what Satan does. You realize Satan doesn't come along and say, eat of this because if you do, you're going to be evil like me. You'll be evil. It'll be great. Nobody would take him up on that, right? No one's like, I don't want that. They wouldn't do it. So what does he do? He gives us the ultimate temptation. You'll be like God. He'll say this. God is out of touch with now. God's old-fashioned. His ways maybe worked back then, but that's not the way the world works now. This is how you ought to live. In fact, you know how to make yourself happy better than God would know how to make you happy. And so wouldn't you like to exercise choice? Wouldn't you like to be your own God? Wouldn't you like to make choices in your life that you're not under his rules or maybe even his regulations, but a life could operate better? Wouldn't you like to be God? And all of a sudden we fall for the same thing that Adam and Eve did in the garden. Eve fell for that line. If you have your Bible, open with me to Genesis chapter 3, beginning with verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good and pleasing for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was there with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking through the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And then in verse 16, he says, To the woman, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children, and your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And to Adam, he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. And it will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since you were from it you were taken. For, uh, from dust you are, and to dust you will return. God gives consequences because of the choice of the sin of people. And once sin entered the world, everything else was broken. It's such an interesting phrase that that God uses, particularly when he talks to Eve. He says, listen, you're going to have pain in childbirth. And then at the end, he all puts as an afterthought. He goes, though you'll desire your husband, he will rule over you. You say, what in the world is that all about? It's not not desire like we might understand desire. It's not like, uh, I love him so much. It's not sexual desire. It's this. He's saying, listen, there will be a control issue. You will desire to rule over your man. And your man's going to desire to rule over you. In other words, all the tension of male-female relationship, all the power struggle, all the craziness that goes on, now is entered because of sin. The dynamic between a perfect relationship now between man and woman is forever changed until God makes all things right when we return to the dust of the earth. So basically, right away, everything is changed. There's going to be a power struggle in your relationship 
with a man or with a woman. And let me just tell you, today, this sermon, you can use it. You can use it in your workplace. Today's application may be for you that what we learn about here today, you're realizing this is going on in a relationship I have at work. For some of you, it's going to be in your marriage. For some of you, it's going to be helpful with a boyfriend or a girlfriend. You can use what you learned today with your friends. There are three fears that started when sin entered the garden. And we're going to talk about those today. If you're taking notes, you need to understand these three fears and how they damage and ruin our relationships and what we can do about it. So if you're taking notes today, the number one fear, well, number one is the fear of exposure makes me distant. The fear of being exposed makes me distant. You might ask yourself, listen, how come I don't have really, really close friends? Why can't I get close to people? Why, why can't I get closer to my husband? Why can't I get closer to my wife? I, I'd like to, to be closer. I'd like to have that intimacy of partnership. Why can't I get close to people around me and people in my life? And here's the truth. There's a lot about you that you don't like. Inside all of us, there's a lot about ourselves we don't like. And we don't want other people to see what we don't like about ourselves. And so what we begin to do is, is because I don't like what I see about me, I certainly don't want anybody else to see it. That happens for you too, right? So we fear others will not accept us, so we keep our distance. What do we do? We do what Adam and Eve did in the garden. Once they realized their condition, they ran and they hid. And you say, why do I do that? Why do I do that in my life? Why is it tough for me to get closer to people? It's because the fear of exposure makes me distant. The Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden. And he said this, I was afraid. He said, because I was naked, so I hid. But he was afraid first. It wasn't just that he was naked and went, well, we're naked. It's that all of a sudden it's something came along with that awareness. Something came along with it. And it was shame. And he didn't want to be exposed to God. He didn't want to show his condition to the Lord, so they ran, they hid in the garden. Donald Miller says this, everybody has a story, and it's not the story that they're telling. See, there's things that you and I don't like about ourselves on the inside. And so we tell a story about what's going on the outside. We put up a smoke screen. We wear masks in such a way because everybody's got a story, but it's not the story that we're telling and God wants to break through to us to get to the real heart of the story, the real issue of what's going on inside of us. He wants to bring the real him, the real way that he feels about us, to the real us on the inside. So let me ask, what's your story? Where are you pretending that there isn't a problem in your marriage? What are you pretending isn't a problem in your life? What are you pretending that isn't a problem in your relationships because you're afraid of facing the truth? Oh, you know it, but you don't want to face it. You're afraid, and so you're running. The scriptures say that the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked in verse 7. And so what happens is when, when sin entered the world, three things happened that still happen with you and happen with me. First of all, the eyes were open, and so what came along with that was shame. All of a sudden they realized, I'm ashamed. Sin has changed things, and now I'm ashamed. I don't like what I see about me. I hate something about me. And so shame came along with sin. And then secondly, what do they do? They sewed fig leaves together, and they made coverings for themselves. Why? They did what you and I do. Shame enters, and so you and I then do the cover-up. I'm going to cover it up. For them, it was the fig leaves, but for us, it's all sorts of cover-ups. It's a story that we tell outside of ourselves. It's not the real us. We don't maybe think the real us is going to be accepted. And so we put the cover-up out there. Why? Because of shame. And then third, what do they do? They hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And so the phase, the third phase that happens because of sin is not only do we experience shame, not only do we cover up, but now we distance ourselves from God. I'm going to step back a bit. I'm going to distance myself from a God who loves me. And let me tell you, God does not expect you to be perfect. 
but he does expect you and I to be honest. Do you see that difference? See, we might all admit we're not perfect, but can we admit that we need to be honest with God? Can I bring, can I pour out my heart to God? Can I bring the real me to God? Can I bring the story that's really going on the inside to a God who loves me, believes in me, cares for me? When we run and when we hide, sin tells us that there's something wrong with us, something wrong with our worth. And I want to point this out because I think this is really essential. It was sin that opened their eyes. It was sin that opened their eyes and brought along with it shame. It attacks our worth. Sin, when it exposes itself, we commit sin, then it exposes itself to who we are. We don't like it, and it brings with it shame. But you need to understand that it was sin that opened their eyes. You think it was maybe the fruit that opened their eyes. No, the fruit just gave them the knowledge that they were naked. But guess what? It was the rebellion. It was the desire to be God in their life that brought shame because of sin, the choice of sin. Sin opened their eyes and brought with it shame. So what happens? We get afraid of being exposed, the real us on the inside coming out. And so we become distant with people. But not only do we become distant, the second fear is this. My fear of disapproval makes me defensive. My fear of disapproval makes me defensive. So we move from simply hiding and running and covering up to now being defensive. And when we're defensive, we start attacking other people back. Because if, if I'm being exposed... And now it's being exposed. I get defensive about that. I'm worried about people disapproving with me. So I start attacking them back. And we're not just hiding from people anymore. Now we're hurling. We're throwing stones back at them because we don't like that about ourselves. It's been exposed. And now we're chucking stones back at them. We're, we're doing, you've heard me say this before, but how do you spell blame? Be lame. It's cheesy. But it's true. Isn't it? That we start attacking other people. It's like, it's like an animal. Here are all these animals in the Garden of Eden, all the animals that were creative. And when an animal feels threatened, what does it do? It makes itself bigger, right? It's going to puff itself up. The, the cobra is going to put out its hood. And every animal is going to try and puff up and look really big. They're going to stand up if they can do that because they feel threatened. And that's what you and I do when we're accusing others. When we make other people the problem... It's because we fear disapproval. And so we become defensive. God said, have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman you gave me, you gave me her. She gave me the fruit and I ate it, right? So there it is. First time in the Bible when somebody threw somebody under the bus. Right there, the man was great at it. He just did, didn't even think, just shoved her right out there, right? Here, by the way, you gave her to me. Throws her right out there. Well, sorry, ladies. We'd love to make you noble, but Eve wasn't any more willing to take responsibility for it either. What did she say? That serpent you made. The serpent tempted me and told me to eat it, and so I did. So she passed responsibility right away too. What do we do? We start becoming defensive. We start hurling. We start accusing. We start blaming because we fear that if God disapproves and reveal to us what we already don't like about ourselves because of shame and sin, that we're going to get defensive. And so what happens? Third fear. My fear of losing control makes me demanding. God said this in verse 16, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. The result of Adam and Eve's sin is that there were consequences, and one of those was the tension between man and woman. It's just going to be there. It's part of the consequence of sin, and it kind of wrecked everything. And so where formerly it was very much a controlled environment, and there wasn't sin, there wasn't tension, now tension has been added to the human experience, and they've never experienced the tension before. And now they have this tension. So Adam and Eve, they, their sin 
is that they lost control. They tried to take control, and in doing so, they lost control. They lost control of their future. They lost control of their destiny. They got kicked out of paradise. I mean, how bad is that? It's like the five-star hotel kicking you out, you know, and saying you got to go down the street and go live, you know, in a homeless shelter or somewhere. That They basically just said you're gone. You're out of paradise. You're out of the garden. They're feeling totally out of control because they were. And the more out of control you and I feel, the more controlling we become. See, some of you, when life feels out of control, you do things that you can control. When life feels a little out of control, some of you, you clean. And you're cleaning stuff and you're scrubbing it because you might not be able to control life, but doggone it, you can control cleaning this countertop right now. And some of you, when life is out of control, you organize. You might not be able to control life, but right now you can sort through things and organize and, and, and get a sense of a feeling of control in your life when life is out of control. And some of you, when life is out of control, you reach to escape, and it might be an addiction, and it might be a relationship, and you're looking for someone else to compensate for your, the lack of control in your life. Could you please bring to me all the things that will counter the nature of the shame and the sin in my life and, and bring me worth? And some of us will reach for things that are addictive and harmful to self, but because life's out of control, we might as well just live out of control. The more out of control you feel, the more controlling you become. And, and I want you to gain this. You might want to write this down. It's not on your notes. But it's this parallel. The root of sin is control. You want to be like God? You want to have some control? Then do differently than God says. So if the root of sin is control, what's the root of control? The root of control is fear. God just doesn't want me to have full knowledge like him. I could be like God, and he just doesn't want me to know. That's what Satan was saying. He raised a fear in Eve's heart. He raised a fear there. And then what happened was the choice to sin. And then what came as a result, that was loss of control. So here's what happens for you and me. If we understand that the root of sin is control and the root of control is fear, when you and I begin to fear any of these three fears, the fear of exposure that makes me distant, the fear of disapproval that makes me defensive, the fear of losing control that makes me demanding, when you and I fear, then what do we do? We try to control. And when you and I try to control, what do we do? We sin. When life's out of control, we become more controlling. You start bossing everybody around. You start protecting yourself. You start defending yourself. You start demanding and demeaning other people and dominating other people. And the more insecure you are, the greater your need to control other people is. See, if you're very secure as a person, you don't have to have your way all the time. It's good. Give them freedom. Do what you need. I can think about other people's interests as more important than my own because I'm going to be secure as a person. You just don't have to be controlling all the time. But when you're insecure, it's got to be your way all the time, at least as many times as you can control it. So you start arguing and demanding and demeaning other people. Why? Why do we do this? It's a cover-up for the act that we're putting on. A defense so no one breaches the outer you that you're projecting to see the inner you that's on the inside, the real you. And they just might discover what you hate about yourself. And so you're scared, you're insecure, but what you and I really need is a savior to give us the kind of security that our outer act can't. So all the misunderstanding between men and women, all the misunderstanding between husbands and wives and boyfriends and girlfriends, and all the confusion and all the conflict, all the bargaining and who's going to control this and who's going to control that and who has dominion over what, all of that stuff goes back to the corrupting nature of sin. That's why relationships are hard, aren't they? Donald Miller said it this way. He said, sometimes relationships feel like we're trying to emotionally cuddle with each other. At the same time, we're tearing each other down. You know that duality I'm talking about? You start to be transparent a little bit. You start to like open up your heart. And just the moment that you think the other person gives you a disapproving look or something, now you're fighting. But what do you really want? I want to emotionally cuddle. But I, I don't know. I can't almost help myself. I'm tearing you down. You're tearing me down. 
But what do we really want in our heart? It's not fun to be in that kind of relationship, is it? You're not cooperating, you're competing. You're competing and controlling each other. And wouldn't it be nice to move from competing and controlling to actually cooperating with each other and fighting against something else or fighting for something greater? Wouldn't that be awesome? How many of you in the workplace wish you could be part of a team that would stop nitpicking and biting and fighting and competing with each other and they would say, let's work toward results, let's work toward something greater? And when you see a team like that, you think, I would love to work at a place like that. Because there's not all the weird stuff going on. Some of you see a marriage like that, and then you begin to fantasize, well, their marriage must be perfect. They must never sin again. There must be no tension in their relationship. Oh, there is. But can they begin to work and fight towards something together instead of competing and controlling one another? How do you do that? How do you and I get over these three fears? How do we grow in our relationship with the Lord? What's the antidote that transforms a relationship and relieves these three fears? There's only one antidote to those fears, and if you're taking notes today, realize it's to learn to live in God's love. There's only one antidote, it's love. And you and I have got to learn to live within God's love. And that means we live imperfectly within God's love. Doesn't mean it's a cure-all. What it means is we got to learn how to live in an ongoing way and keep learning how to live within God's love. John 4, 1 John 4.18 says this, There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment, right? Fear has to do with that, I'm going to get exposed, they're going to disapprove, and I'm afraid I want to run away and hide because of the fear. But he says this, the one who fears is not made perfect in love. Do you realize that you and I are being made perfect in love if you give the love of God a chance in your life? So how do I do that? How do I learn to live within God's love? There's three ways, and... The first is this, that every day, there's things we have to do every day. First one is every day, I surrender my heart to God. You say, well, what would that look like? It looks like getting up in the morning, getting out of bed, you put your feet down on the floor, and you basically just say, God, today I surrender my emotions to you. I surrender my feelings to you. In fact, God, I'm going to surrender, some of you need to do this, God, I'm going to surrender the dreams I had last night to you. That those dreams I had last night, they're not going to control me all throughout my day. They're not going to set me up all throughout my day to control how I think and feel and what I run after. But God, I'm going to give you my feeling, my heart, my emotions, my mind. I surrender it to you. I want you to fill me with your love. Why? Because God is love. And the closer you get to God, the more love you're going to feel in your heart. The closer you and I get to God, though, it's why we get up and we spend time with the Lord in his word. Because the closer you and I get to God, the more we feel God's love. See, when you and I run away from God, when we hide, when we cover up, when we run away, then we begin to have other things escalate in our lives. Fear, insecurity, anxiety, worry, all those things are going to just soar in your life when you get away from God because you're getting distant from him. But perfect love casts out fear. You want to get rid of that stuff, that suspicion about other people, that suspicion about what God thinks about you, that suspicion that makes you look through the filter of every relationship through the fact of, are they buying the story I'm selling? To beginning to come to grips with the real person on the inside of you because of God's love, you surrender your emotions, your heart, to the Lord, and love will begin to soar in your life. Job 11, verse 13 through 18. I'm going to read this to you in the contemporary English version, but it's a friend of Job. And Job's friends don't always give him perfect advice. But when this friend gives Job this advice, Job says, what you're telling me is true. In fact, he kind of says it this way. You're not telling me anything I don't already know, but I want us to look at the truth of what he just said. Look with me at this verse. It says, surrender your heart to God. Turn to him in prayer and give up your sins, even those you do in secret. 
then you won't be ashamed. You'll be confident. You'll be fearless. Your troubles will go away like the water beneath a bridge, and your darkest night will be brighter than noon. You will rest safe and secure, filled with hope, emptied of worry. Isn't that good advice? That we give our emotions, we give our heart, we give the real us on the inside, the insecure us on the inside to God. And when we do, we begin to experience the confidence and perfect love. God's perfect love begins to drive out our fears. So God's perfect love begins to build in trust with us. Some of us need to give our fantasies to the Lord. See what happens. You and I have a pretty well-developed fantasy life. We dream, we think, we have aspirations, we have things that go on in here. We look at people and we have a kind of a fantasy life and, and we need to take that and submit that to God because a fantasy is completely controlled and there's no risk. That's why it's a fantasy, right? I'm controlling this perfect relationship or I'm controlling this thing and there's perfect acceptance, there's no risk and I'm controlling it. And some of us are saying, listen, I've developed such a fantasy life on the inside that I've not submitted to God that I'm having trouble connecting to someone in real life where there is risk and choice. I just don't know how to trust all that yet because I'm afraid, so I hide. And then I develop in my head or my heart, the fantasy of having something that's controlled and without risk. So what do we do? We get up in the morning and you submit those to God. God, I've been developing this as being something far greater, far better, that I would know better what relationship could be like than you do. And we submit those to the Lord. We give them to him. So not only do we surrender our heart, our real heart to God, but every day, I remember that God loves me. And there's four ways that I want to just highlight this for you. Every day, I need to remember God loves me. I need to remember this every day. Do you? I need to remember God loves me. Why? Because everything within shame and everything within sin tries to tell me, suggest to me, whisper to me, accuse me that God doesn't love me. The evil one didn't stop in the garden. The snake lives in your house. The snake whispers to your head. The snake is the suggester. Satan himself is your very real enemy. You have a very real enemy of your souls. And he accuses, he tempts, and then when you and I give in to temptation, he accuses us for it. And he thinks, I win. Now you're going to run. Now you're going to hide. Now you're going to get distant from God. That's why we capture our thoughts and make them obedient to Christ. Amen? So we need to remember God's love. I have to replace the accusation with the truth. What's the truth? God loves me. So there's four ways to do that. Number one, I am completely accepted. Titus 3 verse 7 says, So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. In other words, he says justified. That means just as if I never did it. Because of God's generous gift of dying on the cross for our sins, he now offers us relationship with him that cancels out all of our sin, and there's no condemnation for it, and now we are justified just as if we never committed any of those things, just as if the shame never had to be owned by us or carried by us any longer. Jesus was perfect, and there were a whole lot of people who hated him. And yet you and I, by the light, if I could just be perfect or project that I'm doing really well, then more people will like me. And let's just be honest. Jesus was perfect, and people hated his guts. So being perfect doesn't make people like you. Being perfect doesn't mean you be accepted. Think about it for a minute. If you grew up with siblings, if you had one sibling who was the perfect child, and they never, ever did anything wrong, and they always did things right, would you love them more or hate them more? Right? Perfect child never does this. Perfect child never, oh, you'd want to hate that person, right? Being perfect doesn't gain acceptance. Please understand this. God accepted us and then offers righteousness through his performance, not ours. He loves you. You didn't have to earn it. I'm unconditionally loved. I'm not only completely accepted, but I'm unconditionally loved. God's love is not based on what you and I do, but it's based on who he is. It's his very nature. It's his character. Part of his being, who God is, is love. 
It's not something he made up or enacted. It's part of who he is. And God is love. We always get into trouble when we doubt God's love, don't we? That's when we run. That's when we hide. That's when we get distant. That's when we begin to put a relationship with God out here and we don't let him in on the real story going on on the inside. When we doubt God's love, we get fearful. Isaiah 54.10, God says, Though the mountains be shaken and the hills be removed, yet my unfailing love for you will not be shaken, nor my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. You and I, we are unconditionally loved. I need to remember that. Because, you know, the suggester, the accuser, wants to make me doubt God's love. And last, I'm totally forgiven. I am totally forgiven because of what Jesus did on the cross. I am totally forgiven. So let me ask you a question. If you know in your head because of what Jesus did on the cross, I am totally forgiven. Why are you not carrying that forgiveness? Why are you not receiving that forgiveness? Why are you not living within that forgiveness and owning that forgiveness? Why instead are you and I carrying shame? Why are we still owning it? So we might know in our heads, I am completely forgiven, but I'm carrying shame. Well, what do we need to do? Lay it down. We are totally forgiven. Our sins are wiped out. Listen, God does not rehearse your sin. He releases it. What do you and I do? How many of you this week were rehearsing your sins of the present or past? You're rehearsing it over and over and over again. You're bringing evidence to self-condemn yourself. We are completely forgiven, and yet we're choosing to carry the shame of sin. Release it. What do I need to remember? I need to remember God loves me. How does he love me? I'm completely accepted. I'm unconditionally loved. I'm totally forgiven. And last, I'm considered extremely valuable. I'm considered extremely valuable. I got to remember these things every day. Let me ask you this. How much is your life worth? How much are you worth? I'm not talking about your net worth. I'm not talking about your resources. I'm talking about your self-worth. How much is your life worth? How valuable as a person do you think that you are? Well, to determine that, we got to say, well, what makes something valuable? And there's two things that make something valuable. Number one is who owns it. Who owns it? The value is going to depend on who owns it. The second thing is this, what someone else is willing to pay for it. You may say, my house is worth two million bucks. But your house is really only worth what someone else is willing to pay for it. And my guess is, for most of us in this room, it's nowhere close to that, right? So the truth is what somebody else is willing to pay for it, not what we think about our worth. Value depends on who owns it. Let me just say at an auction. How many of you think that at an auction, a toothbrush owned by Taylor Swift would be more valuable than a toothbrush owned by me? You think that would be more valuable, right? One owned by her? Yeah, it would. Nobody would bid on my toothbrush unless they were just short cleaning supplies at all. They just wouldn't want it, right? They would just use it to scrub something. But Taylor Swift, they might put that thing in a frame. They might do really weird stuff. I have no idea. <laughs> the value is dependent on who owns it. So let me ask, who do you belong to? Who owns you? If Jesus Christ has paid for all your sin on the cross and you've received him as Lord of your life and you belong to him, he loves you. You are a son or a daughter of the most high God. That's God who loves you, the one who you surrender your heart to, that you actually get to the point in your life where you pour out your heart. Secondly, our, de our value depends on what somebody else is willing to pay for it. 1 Corinthians 7, 23 says of us about God, you were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Don't transfer your ownership back to the shame of humanity. You were bought by God at a price. You, your value was dependent on what Jesus paid for you. And what he paid for you and I was done before we were born. In other words, it was done before our performance. His purchase happened before our performance, which was far left than perfect. He bought us and gave us value before we were born. 
He loves you and I that much. You and I are extremely valuable. What would it be like if for just a little bit you just dropped the act? You just dropped putting that picture out here instead of being honest about the person that's in here. What if you did that with God? What if you poured out the real you, your real heart? What if you invited God into this story going on in here instead of this story happening out here? This one's not working for you anyway. What if you invited him in to bring the real you before a real God who loves you and owns you and purchased you and paid his blood for you so that that right relationship could be restored so that you and I have perfect relationship awaiting us in heaven and in the meantime we have tools and skills for the relationships here that we can drive away the fear and the shame of sin and relate to one another in a way that works toward things instead of competing and fighting one another here. I've got to remind myself every day, surrender my heart to God. Every day, I remember God loves me. And last, every day, I have to offer that love to others. Since I have been so loved like that, I have to offer that kind of love, God kind of love, Jesus' love to others. I mean, would that transform your relationships? Yes, it would, right? If you and I begin to love others, without needing something from them or competing with them, would that change your relationships? It would. Romans 15, 7 says, accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. Are you always going to feel like it? Nope. Are some people need extra grace required kind of people? Yes. But how would it transform your life if you begin to extend the love you've received from God to others? I've got to accept other people the way that God accepts me. I've got to love other people the way that God loves me. I must forgive other people the way that God has forgiven me. What does that mean? It means I must pre-value people. I must value them before their performance. Our world teaches us, watch the performance, then give them value or not. God says pre-value them. I chose you before you performed. I forgave you when you sinned. I loved you when you were unlovely. When you ran and hid, I cared enough to come after you, to seek you out, to find you in the garden, and to pursue the real you, because I'm restoring that right relationship both now and into eternity. It's love. 1 Corinthians 13, the most famous chapter on love in the Bible, You've maybe heard it many times, but there's one verse in verse 7 that I want to highlight. Speaking of love, it says this, it always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love expresses belief. It trusts. I choose to believe in you. What happens? You're so worried about other people not believing in you anymore. You're so worried that because other people have sinned against you that you're not going to believe in them anymore and you put up a wall or a boundary or a grudge. But that's not love. Love doesn't stop. Love says, I believe in you. I know we've had a tough time. I know we had this failure. I know you've sinned against me. I know I have sinned against you. I know that it is a tough time right now, but I will not stop believing in you. Love extends grace and expresses belief. Don't stop believing didn't originate with Steve Perry. <laughs> originated with a God who is love. So love perseveres. It never gives up. You can throw everything at me, but I'm going to keep loving you. Love endures the worst. Some of you in this room, you just, you realize I needed this, this message today. God has spoken to your heart and you know it. You realize that you need the Lord and you need to love again like God does. And some of you need to put belief back into your relationship where you have bought the lie of the world. And you've needed this today. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, we drop the shades just over a time of self-reflection. I just want you not to be distracted by anybody around you, but instead just to do this. If you're going to bring the real you to the real God who is. It's going to take risk to open up and do that. But it's worth it. 
there's a God who's awaiting you with love. And some of you in this room, you're saying, I, I don't even know. I, I, I didn't realize that Jesus died for my sin on the cross, that I could have relationship restored. What was lost in the garden can be restored in my life now and in the future. And if today you'd like to enter a relationship with Jesus Christ, a relationship with God, because that's where it all starts, if you like that, then you simply pray a prayer to him. He hears you, but you might want to repeat this after me so that you're just understanding that you talk to God so silently in your heart, you just pray this right now. If you'd like to receive Jesus and have a relationship restored, Jesus, today I'm saying yes to you. I ask you to come into my heart, the real me, and make me a new creation. Forgive me of all my sin. Love me unconditionally. Give me worth and value. I believe that you can do that because you died on a cross for my sin, that you were buried and dead in the ground and that you rose to new life. And so today, Jesus, I want relationship with you. Today, I'm saying yes to you. If you just prayed that prayer, will you raise up your hand anywhere around the room, right over here on the end? I've got some friends who'd like to give you some information. You may just want to keep your hand up. They can find you. There's anywhere around the room that they can go ahead and and uh, just do that. Just today you're just saying, hey, I am acknowledging you, Jesus. I am asking you to be the Lord of my life. I'm coming in. Just hold your hand up long enough. They'll find you. Right here on the end, over in the back. Anywhere else? Just keep your hand up long enough. They can find you. Swinging around the back. Looks like maybe one more. Awesome. Believers in the room. The rest of this service, as we begin to sing to God, as we honor God with our tithes and offerings, as we celebrate a baptism in just a little bit, this may be time for you to bring the real you to God that it's the time for you to begin to engage with him. And maybe that's why you're here today, because it's been a long time. Maybe you've been hiding. Maybe you've been putting the fake story out in front of you. And God just wants to connect with you. Do not miss opportunity to encounter God. Then grow in community with others, and then go live your calling out in the world. Jesus, we're so grateful for your sacrifice for us. God, we thank you for what you're doing in and among us. We give you praise to the glory of the Father. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. We give it up for what God is doing among us. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.